episode 52 ladies and gentlemen welcome back to the indie 11 podcast i'm your host brendan griffiths and this is the show where we bring on those from the footballing world to show you what it takes to be in the 11 this week we have a super talented player in the 11 shay atakoya is here to talk about his journey up through the ranks of seattle on to college and then kind of we lay out his professional career over the past couple of years and it is a great conversation so i can't wait to kick it over to that for you guys i'm super excited as well because i know mental health in soccer has been something that i've always tried to talk about myself on this podcast and always said i want to you know continue to shed a light on it and continue to bring it to the forefront And it's something that we were able to do a little bit in this episode, kind of towards the end. So stay tuned all the way to the back end for that part of our conversation. And before I kick it on over to the interview, if you could do me a favor, I know Spotify has now added this as well, whether you listen to Spotify, Apple, whatever your platform is, if you could just do me a favor, hit pause if you need to, and rate and review the pod, that would be awesome, helps it grow quick, small thing that you can do just to help the show a little bit. So if you go ahead and do that, boom, hit it, and then hit play. And here we are with the interview with Shay. Thanks so much. Do you post videos or is it kind of just the audio? I do both. The audio usually is more popular. More people listen to it solely on the audio, but I do the video just just as another platform as well, you know? Cool, cool. Where do you post the videos? Uh, YouTube. Okay, cool. Because I, I listen to your podcast with Chase, obviously, because mm-hmm. I know Chase, but now I want to go back and watch the video because Chase is a funny guy. Yeah, yeah, that was one of my uh, funnier episodes. Because you guys, did you cross paths at Tista? Yeah, so initially, he and I had the same agent, and my agent's like, oh, I have this American guy coming. He says he knows you. And I was like, I've never heard of this person in my life. (laughs) Yeah, like, you played against him in youth. And I'm like, probably, that makes sense. So we played against each other once or twice. And then, yeah, eventually I ended up going to Tista with him and and actually meeting him there. Because did you guys grow up, like, in the same area? He was from like Portland area. I was from Seattle area, but for some reason we ended up playing. I think I remember traveling down South a couple of times and playing his team and his team was good or they would travel up. So we, we definitely played maybe two or three times. Was that before your time with going into the Sounders Academy or was that during that time? That was before. So I played with a youth club called Emerald City. Okay. And it was probably when I was playing for Emerald City that I played him, or maybe when I played for uh, Crossfire. But both of those were club before before Academy. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Sure. Yeah, interesting. Such a such a small world, which I learned more and more now doing this podcast. I had another player on, his name's Aramis, who went on trial at Teestead and when Chase was there as well. So I just feel the world is so small. <laughs> oh, okay. So yeah, he I've actually heard his name too. Because, yeah, I think we all had the same agent. And I remember our agent was talking about him, too. And he's like, oh, yeah, I think he's injured right now. Or uh, just getting back from injury. Something he might like be. That. Well, yeah. So he actually had cancer as well. Oh, so that's what it was. He is recovering from that. And then I think last he was in, I want to say, like, Uzbekistan or something. some Or Kazakhstan, maybe. And now he's back home right now. Last I've talked to him. 
Okay. Yes. I remember my agent was definitely talking about him. He was like, Oh, he's such a great player. He had cancer, but he's going to come back and play. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, that'll be great. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a cool story. Listen to his as well, but, uh, I will. Yeah. Well, for, I mean, I'm sure we could honestly include that as part of our intro, but for those of you who are, are tuning in with us, we are in the 11 this week with Shay Adekoya. He is currently in off season right now. And we were just discussing kind of how small the uh, soccer community, the soccer world can sometimes be as you go up and up in the levels. But Shay, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So if we go back a little bit to kind of share your story, as we just mentioned there at the top, you were involved with the Sounders Academy in your youth career a little bit. So what was that like, that experience of being able to play for an MLS Academy? It was, it was good. So kind of like probably, I think my friend Chase said this before, but Academy was very, very fresh kind of mm-hmm. when I was in high school. So I think around yeah, junior year, it started. I started on like Emerald City in Seattle and I and then I eventually went to Crossfire in Seattle because they were just the best team in the area. And then as I was going to UCLA, my UCLA assistant coach and my head coach were kind of like, hey, you should think about playing Academy. And I was kind of like, no, thank you. I like <laughs> I yeah. like playing with my friends on my club team. But they kind of pushed me towards it. And I actually ended up going to Sounders Academy where one of my old Crossfire coaches was now the coach. Okay. So it was actually a pretty easy transition because I was kind of scared. I was going to try out for Sounders Academy maybe my junior year. But on the way down to the trial, because it was kind of south of Seattle, my dad my dad was like, oh, I heard that uh, Sounders Academy, they don't want you to go to college. So I don't know if I want you doing this. And my dad mm-hmm. uh, and my parents are both very big on school. So I was like, yeah, yeah, you're right. I was, I was very scared of trialing and not making it. So I was like, yeah, yeah, you're right. I don't know if they... They want us to go to college. Maybe I should trial. So we actually went down to the trial, but I didn't trial. Okay. That's a very long story. I'm so sorry. But, no, you're uh, good. You're um, good. This is what it's here for. <laughs> anyways, the the year I actually was going to go to Sound Academy, I contacted my former coach. His name was Dick McCormick. And he was like, yeah, actually, I've been watching you, and I think you'd be a good fit for this. So I didn't even have to trial that time, which was great. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that was very easy. And a lot of the people who were actually on the Sounders Academy team at that time were people who I'd played with back on my old Crossfire team. So uh, the coach's son, Duncan McCormick, uh, Henry Wingo, who you might know of, he's playing in, uh, I think, Hungary right now. He was in mm-hmm. Sweden for a while. Uh, a lot of other good people, David Olson and other people who I grew up with playing against uh, were on that team. But long ways to say, Sounders Academy was good. I thought it was very cool to be in a professional youth organization. Like you go from kind of bring your own water you know sometimes you bring your own balls to training to like everything's there you have like two two physios there on the pitch at all times handing out water the coach went from drill to drill to drill so it was definitely a big step up and a very 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 good experience for you know being on a different type of team and kind of pushing myself uh level wise yeah absolutely what it sounds like with you and your family as well you maybe had differing our ideas or the same idea about what you really wanted to do with soccer, you know, what, did you always kind of know that you wanted to one day become a professional or was the education route kind of the way that you wanted to go and soccer maybe opened some doors for you in, in that way? What was your thought process growing up as a youth player that did maybe change when you got to the Sounders? That is a great question. Yeah. Going back to my parents slash my family, my dad is from Nigeria. My mom is from Japan. 
both of them <laughs> it's kind of funny because you have like strict african parent on one side and then also kind of like tiger mom-ish uh, <laughs> on the other side so it's very much just like you know do your schoolwork. Yeah. so yeah growing up very much my parents were like you know it's important to get an education it's important to go to college it's important to finish college things like that so I think always, you know, anyone who plays soccer, anyone who grows up playing a sport, it's like, yeah, I'm probably going to be pro in this. Or like, I'd love to be pro in this. That'd be so fun. Yeah. So I definitely had professional aspirations for a while. But I think for myself growing up, I never put too much weight on it. It was never like, you have to be pro in this. Or you have to do this and that to be pro. I was very much just like, like soccer, something I love doing. I'd go mm -hmm. in the backyard and play just in the rain. Didn't matter just because I loved watching let's say Neymar videos love Neymar probably watch every single one when I was growing up and then going in the backyard and pretending to be him or you know doing those doing those skills and games so I don't think it was something I ever fully fully focused on but it was something that kind of ended up happening just through kind of my love of the game and uh, how much I played yeah and it it obviously it worked out in the sense that you were able to kind of achieve both of those dreams, you know, of going to an extremely prestigious university like UCLA and getting to play at such a high level and now obviously achieving that dream of playing professionally for the past few years. What was the decision like to choose UCLA to move down to California and, and play for, you know, one of the best college soccer programs that's around? <laughs> I feel like in general, the process of people choosing colleges at 16, 17 is a joke. Oh my like God. I think, yeah. it, I think it's so foolish that I remember just like going back to this thing about my parents. I was very much, I went to a pretty like prestigious high school in Seattle called Lakeside. And all of us were just like Ivy League or bust. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> so in my mind, I was like Ivy League or bust. So I remember one of the first schools that like hit me up was probably like University of Michigan or like UCSB. And I was like, mm -mm, not interested. No, keep it <laughs> so uh, for me, I, I did like a Harvard soccer camp. I emailed Stanford, like all these different schools, uh, Dartmouth. And uh, some of them worked out, some of them didn't. Dartmouth was actually one that was interested. And another school I was really interested in was Penn. But anyways, after my uh, junior year of playing club, we went to like regionals in Hawaii, which was really cool. And my coach was like, hey, like you should go to this UCLA camp. I think UCLA would be a really good fit for you. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, whatever, sure, I'll go. So I ended up going to the UCLA soccer camp. And if anyone's listening to this and you're trying to figure out how to get into a, a school, 100% go to their camps because, you know, let's say there are 300 people there. Again, 150 are just local kids who their parents are like, you're going to go to this school one day. So they, just yep. throw, they throw them at this camp and the kids are usually horrible. So like, if you're good, you'll easily stand out. So highly recommend camps. Went to the camp, did really well, met some of the people on the team. And then, yeah, when I was leaving, I was at the airport and the coach was kind of like, hey, we really want you to come here. So like, let's start working on, you know, whatever it takes to get you here. So sending in paperwork and stuff. So I got really lucky going to UCLA and getting an offer from the camp. The only other thing was I was still kind of thinking Ivy League mm -hmm. and Dartmouth was really interested in me. And I'd been emailing the Penn men's soccer coach all summer because one of my good friends, her name is Darby played soccer, went to high school with me, was going to Penn. And another friend from Sounders Academy was also going to Penn. And they were like, you would love it here. You should definitely come with us. I almost went to Penn, but the coach never responded to me. So my, wow. I think it was August 9th, August 9th, I was deciding, I was like, okay, I'm going to commit to UCLA. 
And the pen coach emailed me that day, like, oh, like, hey, did see any of your emails? Would love for you to come here. And I was like, no, nah, it's too late. <laughs> Went to UCLA. But uh, very happy to have gone to UCLA as, you know, such a great program, such a great school. But also, you know, just like athletically, they produce so many professional players. So I thought it was a great environment to, you know, meet the people I did and be in the program I was, which is such a great program. Yeah, I think you hit such an important point that it's something I talk about with. I've done a little bit of college coaching as well and experienced different levels. And it's something that you'll hear a lot of college coaches say is my job, my livelihood depends on like the decisions, the decision makers of 17 year olds, you know, which is such an insane thing to think about. And, you know, I look back at it too. Like, did I fully know what I was getting into when I was picking a college or what that really entailed, you know, picking university? No, but it's funny, like you say, how just little things like that, when you're young, that pen coach could have emailed you two weeks earlier, could have completely changed your decision. Who knows where you'd be at right now? It's, it's such an interesting kind of path to go down when you pick up, think of those little decisions. Completely different. I think, again, when I was picking UCLA, my dad and I were kind of going, up, going over it. We're like, the weather's nice. Like, that's good. It's better than the East Coast. And like, <laughs> California, my sister went to USC. So we're like, we like California, right? All right, cool. And they play good soccer. All right. And the academics are good. Cool. Check it off. Let's do it. Yep. <laughs> so weird. Oh, man. So what was the... Was there a big jump in level going from the Sanders Academy footballing wise to UCLA? There definitely was a jump. I remember committing to UCLA and a lot of people were kind of telling me like, oh, why would you commit there? Like, you're not going to play at all. You're kind of just going to flunk out. And for me, again, at that point, it wasn't even about playing on the team so much or like starting and getting a lot of minutes. I was just like excited to be going to UCLA and yeah. still playing soccer at all. When I got there, I was definitely nervous. I think I feel like I was kind of bad at the beginning because I was very nervous. And I, I, you know, I defer a lot to older players. You had people like Leo Stoltz there who, you know, ended up winning the Mac Herman my freshman year. So I was definitely very timid. And there definitely was a level jump in terms of learning how UCLA played because they had a very distinct style of uh, possession at that time. Definitely was a level jump, but I think quickly got the hang of it. And yeah, things actually turned out very well for me that freshman year. I think it's, to be honest, I think it's refreshing to hear a player talk openly about, you know, going into somewhere and being kind of nervous and having to adjust to that. Because I think a lot of times what players do is either they just won't admit that or they just kind of, you know, give you the typical line of, oh, yeah, there was a learning curve and, and I had to adjust when I got in there. And and then I started to figure it out. But in reality, what that means, if you read between the lines is, no, when I got there, I was nervous and I couldn't really figure out how to get my footing. and then. Eventually, things started to click a little bit. So I think that's refreshing to hear a player be like, no, when I went in there, I was nervous. But then day after day of training, and, and that's what training's for, is you, you get a little bit more comfortable each day. Yeah, I feel like, you know, each level you go to, there's going to be some sort of, even if it's not a skill difference, it's still like a kind of like a learning curve or just like a, a stylistic difference that you definitely have to pick up on and learn how to function within that system or environment. So yeah, UCLA was a, it was good. It was definitely different, but it was good. And I'm happy that eventually, you know, I overcame the nervousness, kind of realized, you know, it's just soccer. It's all the same. In the yeah. End. Yeah. Once you figured out that, you know, the ball is round and the field is still the same <laughs> and everyone's playing the same game, then you yep. wound up having a, a pretty successful career. And how would you kind of summarize your UCLA experience? What do you reflect on of it? Oh, <laughs> that is a 
a broad question. There's so many things that go into my UCLA career. My freshman year was great. Turned out being super good. I remember on our first road trip, we played, I want to say like we played like UNC and we played one other team that I can't remember. We played two very good teams. They were just coming off like a very successful year the year prior. And our coach, Jorge Salcedo, infamous name, <laughs> he was very much like, yeah, let's hit the ground running. So we played two really hard teams. I ended up, oh, I think we played Wake. I ended up getting, I think, a goal and an assist or two goals or something like that. And I think I got like right off the bat, I got top jar player of the week or in, in mm. one of those, you know, accolade systems that means nothing to me now. But when I was <laughs> growing up, like at I that time, like, yeah, it's the I'm biggest thing in the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Your name on some random website. I was like, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, usually, like, you know, in, instead of going into too, too much detail about every single year, I, I really enjoyed it. I think I met a lot of really good people and also really good players. You know, I played with Jackson Ewell. I played with Jose Hernandez. I played with uh, Abu Dunladi. I played with Leo Stoltz. I played with Michael Amick. You know, we had such a good Eric Holt. We had such a good team. Oh, Reggie Cannon, if I didn't say Reggie Cannon. <laughs> uh, it, was, it, was, it was insane, the, the talent that was going through. But also... There are so many people who maybe stopped playing that were so good. I always think about, we had a player named Willie Ray Goza, who's such a talented midfield player and still is such a good player, but he just ended up not playing anywhere. So, you know, mm. a lot of good people, a lot of good players. Uh, it was interesting to go through a program like that and see the quality. And then, you know, you see pe some people like Reggie and Jackson are like at the top, top, top. And then some people stopped playing. So it was cool. Yeah. Were there characteristics maybe on the field or even off the pitch as well that you could start to see from those types of players? Like, oh, he's going to go on to, to do really big things. Or were there other players that you said that had that technical ability, but then you were surprised that they didn't kind of go on to do the same things? I think the person I can speak about oh, the most is Reggie. Reggie was only there for one year. He was a freshman and I was a junior. Reggie is like fanatical. Reggie's insane. The only thing that man ever thought about was being a pro. Really? And everything he did was like, I wanted to be a pro. Actually, yeah. So Reggie, I remember after we lost our playoff game in Louisville, in like the second round, Reggie was crying on the field. And I was like, oh, Reggie, like you've got so many years left. Like, don't worry. Like, it's no problem. And this man up and just left and went pro to like FC Dallas. And now <laughs> he is where he is. So I, I would say I could definitely see in Reggie, like Reggie, that was the only thing he wanted. He was very focused on it. He loved the game. And he's one of those people who's like very goofy off the pitch, but then as soon as you're playing, like completely Laser different focus, person. Yeah. Yes. That. And then I would also talk about a female player, Jessie Fleming, who's on Chelsea. I remember seeing her all the time. She would be, you know, by herself on the field, working on her touching. She was such a good player. She's playing for the women's national team since she was like, I don't even know. But I remember when she joined, she was like 16, 17 playing on the women's national team, but like I could, I could see her drive and her work ethic and how focused she was. Cause she would just be doing things by herself all the time. Uh, so those are two people who I, who I would say was like, yeah, you could tell that they were destined for greatness where Jesse was already great. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So your experience, you were there at three years at UCLA, correct? Mm -hmm. So I have to ask, were you able to get the degree or is that a tough conversation to have with mom and dad? <laughs> Very tough. Did not get the degree. So kind of the, the path that led me to leaving UCLA was there was this. So my roommate, Abu Dunladi, great player, is Ghanaian. And there's a Ghanaian guy who 
I don't even know how to describe him, but he's, he's, he's a really good guy. He's basically very connected into like the professional world, especially in Europe. And he was one of the people who helped Abu get a lot of trials. So Abu, not to speak too much about him, but he went on a couple of European trials and did really well, but ultimately decided to stay in the States. Mm-hmm. And since I was his roommate, he would watch some U- UCLA games and he was like, hey, I think you're a good player. Like, would you want to go abroad? He told me this after my freshman year. And I was kind of like with my dad, I was like, no, like we're, we're like going to go through school. Like I kind of have, asp- I still have aspirations of being a doctor. So we were very much like, no, we're going to go to the med school route. No, thanks. After my sophomore year, going into my junior year, I don't know what it was, but the opportunity came up again, and I was very interested in going pro at the time. So I went on a trial to Las Palmas in Spain, and I didn't make it because they were kind of like, you're too old, you're 20, turning 21, you either need to be on the pro team, you can't be on the youth team, and you're not good enough for the pro team. This is a very long rant. No, no, this is good. This is important. (laughs) After that, I started getting the itch to go pro. And after my junior season, the other thing was I was trying to look at classes for the next quarter. And a lot of my pre-med psychobiology classes were at the same time as practice, which is, you know, like either nine to 11 or 11 to one. So I was like, dang, like, I don't, I don't know if I can uh, take any classes this upcoming quarter or I'm going to have to be missing a lot of practice. So it kind of happened perfectly that I got the itch to go pro at the same time that my classes were starting to conflict with soccer. And I just went on this European opportunity and got very excited about possibilities there. So I did have to talk to my dad about, hey, I want to leave school. And he was not so hot about that. But luckily, UCLA had this or has this program where if you finish half, at least half of your degree with you know good academic standing, you can come back and finish with the scholarship that you left on. So I came into UCLA on like a book scholarship, whatever, a couple, <laughs> couple hundred dollars. But by the end of my junior year, I was on a, I was on a full. So luckily mm-hmm. I can go back and finish UCLA for free later on. And that was the only reason my dad was like, okay, fine. You can go play. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'll sign off on this. Cause you can finish it one day. Exactly. Is that ever difficult to balance, you know, a pre-med track with the demands of a division one football program like that? Definitely a lot. I feel like going into UCLA, the athletics department was like, the academics department is very understanding. Like if you have tests on the road, you can get them proctored or you can get moved, things like that. But I found a lot of my professors were kind of like, no, I don't want you to take this test early because, you know, you might tell people what it's like or mm. you shouldn't take it late because people tell you. So I, a lot of my classes were very tough because I had to like the final would be my whole grade or stuff like that. Or I would just have to like eat like missing a test. Things like that. So it was it was very difficult. I think ultimately that was another reason why I was like, okay, maybe I should give the give the pro thing a shot now and then you know do my the rest of my academics later when I'm a little less busy. Yeah. So once you finally had that decision made of okay, it's it's time for me to go professional, was that first thought to go overseas, or did just kind of it fall into place that the homegrown contract with going back home to Seattle just worked out and that was like the right move for you? So I had, oh, his name is Peter, the guy who's a Ghanaian who was helping the boot and kind of took me to my first European opportunity. Peter was telling me like, hey, look, like if you want to go abroad, you know, I think I can get you some teams, you know, Scandinavia, I can set you up on some trials. And on the other side, I had like Sean Henderson and the Sounders being like, hey, like you should definitely go pro here. We'd love to have you. And ultimately what won out was the idea of me being close to home. I never envisioned myself going abroad ever there's not ever really anything I was interested in so when it came down to it I was like yeah I definitely want to you know be at home hometown team like live with my family 
get recognized in Seattle, all that homegrown hype that there is. I definitely <laughs> bought into it. So, uh, yeah, just chose to be a homegrown. Was there ever, I know you spoke to a little bit that kind of nervousness first getting to UCLA. Was there ever a little bit of that signing as you were what the eighth ever homegrown player in the, in the Sounders history. And, you know, some of the, the names that preceded you are, are some pretty big names, especially in terms of us soccer. Was there ever a little bit of that kind of nervousness to, to live up to that name, that hype of being a Seattle Sounders homegrown contract? I feel like there was nervousness, but it wasn't because of my predecessors or, you know, anyone else. Mm -hmm. I think I always just put a lot of pressure on myself because I'm excited to, play and do well. And uh, especially, you know, familial pride, I think would be more than anything. But yeah, definitely, you know, DeAndre Yedlin was before me. Uh, Jordan Morris was before me. Aaron Kovar was before me. So I knew I, I knew the names of the people who were before me, Darwin Jones, Sean O'Coley. But uh, I don't think both Henry and I, oh, I can't speak for Henry, but I don't think I put too much pressure on myself because of people. Because of that, me. yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And then you had kind of your first season bouncing between a little bit of time, you know, having some minutes with the first team and per- most of your minutes with uh, Seattle Sounders too. What was that like kind of bouncing between the USL side and the uh, MLS outfit? I think it's very odd doing that. I think, I think, I feel like MLS has moved away from doing that as much, but it was like a perfect storm of, we had a lot of forwards on the first team, but people were getting hurt left, right and center. Or I think, Jordan got hurt that year. Did Jordan get hurt that year? I don't remember. Was but that his was ACL some... year maybe? Because he had a big knee injury, right? That might have been the year. Uh, no, no, no. Jordan was healthy that year. It was. I think it was like we had Will Bruin, me, Clint, and Jordan. Big names. Mm. <laughs> but for some reason, I think we didn't have enough players that I kept making the bench. So I was continually or like very frequently on the MLS bench. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, like, this is great. Like, I deserve to be here. Like, I'm going to get in. Like, this is great. So I was on the bench a lot. So I didn't play with S2 a l- too much. But then when I did play with S2, I was kind of in my own head about I'm on the first team. Like, I shouldn't be yeah. here. Like, what am I doing with <laughs> S2? This is a joke. So I don't think I put in enough mental effort into playing with S2. And then I, I think there also was a big nervousness about you know being from the first team playing with the, the second team about like i need to perform super mm-hmm. well so i was very much in my own head that year you feel as if maybe a better option would have been to hey you're just going to be an s2 player for this year and then you go into the season thinking i need to go and dominate this level and then maybe next year is the opportunity for me or vice versa you know you're just on the first team bench and you're trying to get minutes like do you think that bouncing between back and forth and having that pressure as you go down or as you go up kind of made it more difficult. I think honestly, what happened was the best. I mean, one, I wouldn't change anything, but I think, I don't know if I remember, I think a couple years after me, I worked with this life coach and he was frequently at the MLS rookie symposiums where they would take all the new MLS players from college and kind of be like, don't spend all your money. And he was how to be successful <laughs> in, uh, in uh, the MLS. And I remember, I think Garth Lagerway, who was the GM of the Sounders, was speaking. And he, was, he said something that was like, you know, something you guys all need to get comfortable with is dominating like the second league. And I think if you told me that when I was coming in, I would have the same mentality, which is just like, I don't, you know, who cares about the second league? You know, I signed with the first team, I want to play with the first team. Yeah. But at the same time, if I was with the first team the whole time, Again, I, I think I played 
maybe 60 minutes the whole year. So, and you know, that's just realistically what happens a lot of the time. So I, I think I'm happy to have bounced between the two teams because I wasn't ready to play with the first team. Mm. And, you know, it was good to get minutes with the second team and actually play. I think the more important thing is having players who are mentally ready for the pro game and the pro level and, you know, everything that comes with it. So I think you have so many stories of those players who are successful right off the bat, either with the first team or playing down with the second team. But I just think I wasn't, I was very much in my own head about how I need to be and my ego and who I am as a player uh, to be successful on either team, I would say. Mm. For a player that's training day in and day out with an MLS club like Seattle, what does that look like? Like what's the typical training day or kind of what's your schedule like? Me, I lived maybe like 30, 45 minutes from practice. So I would wake up, drive straight to training, eat breakfast there, kind of mingle with the people a little bit, even though I was a little shy, you know, I sat around and tried to be friendly or tried to be a <laughs> part of the group. Mm. Ryan Schmetzer was very much about young people and their development and kind of their grit. So he wanted me, Henry Wingo, another guy on the team, Zach Mathis, to kind of be out early in training. So we would try to go out and do some things in the morning, whether it's, you know, some touches or some two touch or some dribbling thing, some shooting, whatever it was. So go out a little bit earlier than the, than the, than the, you know, the big dogs, Clint, Nico and who not and try to work on some things, go through training. I really like the training flow that the Sounders had. It would be a nice little kind of like warm up, rondo, passing drill, possession, game done. Very fluid. So we'd go through that and then, you know, stay after, maybe do some shooting, some more dribbling, you know, kind of young, young professional development. Go in the locker room, get a smoothie that they made, delicious. <laughs> Maybe we'd have a lift and then go home. You know, the life of a professional is very chill. It's, you know, two to three hours a day max if you want it to be that short or it could be a lot longer depending on, you know, what your personal schedule is. Yeah, and you're usually home by early afternoon, I imagine. So you still have kind of the rest of the day to do whatever you want. Exactly. Hmm. Something that you said there that was interesting, what is it like for a player that's maybe – not the most outgoing because I know I've experienced the same thing as well. I've, I've talked to players before and they're like, when you go on trial, you should go and you should try and start a conversation with everybody to ingrate yourself with the team as quickly as possible. And I'm like, but I'm really not that guy. Like I'm not the guy that's like going to try and be friends with everybody right off the bat. I, I try and build that naturally, but it's tough, you know, especially in trials when you're only there for a week, you got to kind of make an impact and, and you don't want to be just the quiet guy that doesn't speak to anyone. What do you say to a player that is a little bit shy that's maybe going on trial or joining a new club or something like that? I mean, I feel like it always just takes time. I mean, yeah, I'm not a very socially outgoing, especially initially person. Mm. So, I mean, any trial I've been on, any team I've joined, I, you know, I worry less about talking to people. I worry more about playing well, working hard. And I think, you know, once you make the team or once you make an impact on the field, you know, people start talking to you, people start joking with you, and then it's a lot easier. So I don't think you necessarily have to go out and, you know, try to make friends off the bat, especially because, yeah, <laughs> your play is more important. People would rather you play well and not be their friend than not play well and be like, hey, what's like, what's up? Did you see that new like Netflix show? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the game can do the majority of the talking for you. I don't know. It, it, it might sound bad, but it's sort of like, yeah, you can be the funny guy on the team. But if if you're shit, you're not going to be friends with the best players on the team. Whereas exactly like you said, if, if you can play and, and the other players on the team, they can trust you, then that's all that really matters. Even if you're 
silent. You don't really speak to anybody. <laughs> if you're the funny guy, you're not going to be funny for long. Yeah. If you don't play well. Exactly. Are, uh, yeah. It starts to get a lot less funny when you're constantly giving the ball away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As you were wrapping up that season with Seattle, what was kind of your thinking of your standing with the club? Did you think, okay, I've built a little bit of momentum here. I can build upon this in, in my second year, or were you having conversations with the coaching staff or, or the front office and, and maybe learning a little bit more about what their plans were for you? So yeah, after the first year, I knew I was on a two year deal. So I was like, okay, you know, no problem. Come back. Uh, it's going to be fine. So did a lot of like work on the pitch, but also tried to do some mental work with this life coach mm -hmm. uh, to put myself in a better spot for the second, for the second season. So I went to preseason with the Sounders the second year. And I think it went a little bit better. Like I was definitely happier with how I was doing. I was feeling a little bit more comfortable. I felt like I was winning the positions or the position and how they wanted me to play. And after we came back from our first preseason trip, I remember Brian Schmetzer called me to his office and he was like, Hey, look, we don't think you're an MLS player. We think you should be, you know, in the USL and uh, we want to send you down to like S2 permanently or well, I guess for the year or whatever it was. And I was like, Hmm, interesting. Don't really want to do that. Obviously that's a big, you know, downgrade. <laughs> also, I was just thinking about like, yeah, I'm in the first team locker room. I'm have to move to the second team locker room. And then I'm just <laughs> the logistics of it are just awful. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to be seeing the first team players I'm like that just doesn't feel right. So I was just like, mm, not really a big fan of that. But anyways, he was kind of like, you can either get on S2 or we can send you, you know, to another USL club if you prefer that. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, I've been in this system. I don't think I've presented myself in the best light because I was just a very young, timid player who didn't mesh well with the coaching staff at that time. I just think personally because, you know, I didn't I didn't really give off a good energy just because I was kind of scared into myself. So I was like, yeah, I'd love to go on loan somewhere else so that's when i kind of went on loan to orange county for two weeks which is an interesting story so yeah i was like yeah i'd love to go on loan i started talking with sounders about which teams to go to and uh, chris henderson who's part of the Sounders staff i think he works in miami now but he was like you went to ucla i went to ucla i feel like you love california and i was like yeah that makes sense so he got me in contact with orange county and they're like yeah we want you down here right away I was like, great, that sounds cool. So I went down to Orange County and my understanding was that it was permanent for the year. Mm -hmm. So I went down there, played a couple games with them. Things are going well. And then I remember talking to the GM and I was like, hey, like, can I get my car down here? Because I, you know, I'd love to have my own car. I'd love to be independent, not rely on my teammates again, because I'm kind of timid. I don't want to ask people for favors. And they were like, yeah, 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 like, hold on. We're still talking to Seattle. And then eventually he was like, Jordan Morris just got hurt. The Sounders might want you back. And I was like, oh, interesting. Okay. So waited, waited, waited. And then they're like, yeah, sorry, it's not going to work out. Sounders want you back. So, you know, like good luck back in Seattle. So then I left Orange County and I went to LA where my sisters were just to kill some time. And Schmetzer called me and was like, hey, so I talked to the second team coach and we, and he doesn't want you down. He doesn't want you on the second team here. And we don't want you on the first team. So basically we're going to like put you on waivers. So that's kind of how I ended up like separating from Seattle. Oh my God. So yeah. basically it started with you thinking you were going on loan. They're like, actually, no, no, no. That the team that wanted to loan you actually still wants you. And then they're like, no, that's not the case at all. Exactly. So I thought, I, I thought I was about to go back and play with the first team. So I was like, Oh, Jordan Marks yeah. is hurt. They need a player. And then all of a sudden he was like, no, no one wants you here. So like, see ya. I was like, hmm, word. 
damn cold-blooded was that your first i'm sure you probably had experiences before but that was that your first ever experience of kind of realizing damn this game is a little cutthroat a little more cutthroat than maybe i thought that it was definitely definitely yeah definitely was my first first experience of you know i feel i was talking about this with one of my friends the other day when you think about going pro you're like playing time face and like your name and jersey everywhere like you always think about like all the best things but you don't you don't think about like the little business aspects of it and i think the reality of the situation was that seattle wanted to kind of free up my roster spot and bring in another player and you know that's how the business goes so yeah i think that was my first taste of the business side yeah absolutely so what's what's the thinking at that point you've now you know you've left orange county because they've said they your your uh, home club wants you and then the home club says nope actually we don't you know your your first experience okay wow this this game is a lot more cold-blooded and a lot more cutthroat than i really thought definitely a lot different than when I was just a kid that was playing up in Seattle, having fun with it every day. What's going through your head at that point? So funny enough, before the end of the season prior, I was with S2 on a trip in, I think it was in Oklahoma city. I was talking to Peter again, the guy who kind of sent me to Europe in the first place. And I was saying like, I really wish I could have tried it out in Europe. Like, I don't know if like the USL is for me, like things are going so well, like being a homegrown player. And he was like, I think, you know, I think I, you know, he was, he's always, he's always been of the opinion that like the USL is a very tough league to be in and Mm -hmm. it's very good to be in Europe first for your development, but also just, you know, I think they respect young players a little bit better and you get a lot, a lot more looks. So I was talking to him since, well, basically since I signed. So when I was kind of not going to Orange County, I was like, wait, this is actually kind of great because now I'm kind of free to go to Europe. Mm -hmm. So after I was cut, I stayed in california i found this awesome trainer his name is nikki hollander he actually trains a lot of top pros he trained like ben teke he trains Ivak origi he's wow. trained i mean he's trained a lot a lot a lot of people so i started working with him during that period of i guess hiatus or being off and then i got my first european opportunity well i guess my second european opportunity but my first kind of real one. Anyways, I went to Denmark. That's all I'm trying to say. (laughs) Let's take a break to talk about support for the In the 11 podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below the waist grooming. Their products are precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped performance package is the ultimate men's hygiene bundle. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code 11 at manscaped.com. Now, if my math is correct, that's about 8 million balls. Now, listen, here's the deal, gentlemen. The Performance Package 4.0 has arrived, and it is a game changer. Now, I know we got a lot of ballers out here, right? We got a lot of coaches out here. A lot of you, I know in your sessions, in your games, you're constantly saying, you got to take care of the ball, but you're not taking care of your own. It's crazy. It's it's wild, and we got to change that here, and Manscaped's going to help you do that. So, first off, we've got the Lawnmower 4.0, and it is the future of men's below-the-waist grooming. And that is because of their advanced skin safe technology. The lawnmower 4.0 is also waterproof. It has a 400k LED spotlight. So no more going blind in the bathroom, getting hair all over the floor, right? Pop in the shower. You've got the light as well. Easy. And you're done. On to the next one. Now, same goes for that weed whacker, the 
Manscaped Weed Whacker for your ear and nose hair trimming necessities. You've got the proprietary skin safe technology, which is going to help reduce with nicks, snags, and tugs in those delicate, sensitive areas. Now, last but not least, we can't forget about the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and the Crop Reviver Ball Toner. A lot of you guys, I know you've got a routine with your recovery, right? You've got pre-game rituals, you've got post-game rituals, a recovery routine that you do after, right? Hop in an ice bath, whatever it is, you have to add your below-the-waist care to that. You've got to take care of your balls, gentlemen. You don't want to be playing 90 minutes, and then you come in, and you're sweaty and disgusting, and you're not taking care of yourself. you got you got to do it. And Manscaped, like I said, is here to help you in that department. And who knows? Maybe that special someone that's in your life coming to the game, watching you play, you know, you play a good 90 minutes, maybe you bag a goal. I don't know. You want to be ready. You want to be prepared. You don't want to be in a situation where you are left without Manscaped. Now, just because Manscaped is hooking you up and they want to take care of you, the Performance Package 4.0 has a couple of goodies thrown in there. They've got the Manscaped boxer briefs and they threw in a little carry-on bag just to travel with all of your Manscaped products, whether you're going for an away game, right? It's a road trip, you're in a plane, whatever. Chuck all your Manscaped products in there. You don't have to think about it. You can forget about it and make sure that you're still taken care of. So it is time, gentlemen, because your balls will thank you. It is time to take care of yourself. So go to manscaped.com and get 20% off with free shipping using the code 11. That's 20% off with free shipping using the code 11. E-L-E-V-E-N at manscaped.com. That is 20 whole percent off of your order. 20% off your order with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code 11. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. (laughs) So what evolved from earlier on, you mentioned how you never really pictured going overseas or going to Europe as something that you really wanted to do. Did kind of just seeing the way the U.S. soccer landscape was and and did you just feel like you needed something fresh, something new? Like what was the thought process change to say, yeah, you know what, let's go and let's go and see what Denmark's saying? Well, yeah, I uh, with the Sounders happened how it did. You know, you go on waivers and all the teams look at you and say, hey, this is a player we want. So I got passed it by all the MLS teams. I think it was also a period in the USL where most teams were full. Okay. So I think it would have been difficult for me to have tried to get on a USL team, but definitely being in the US, I was kind of like, you know what, I think I'm ready for a different opportunity. Scandinavia, Denmark would be tough and different because, you know, I'm far away from my family and uh, I don't know the language necessarily, but at the same time, Peter did a really good job of pitching like this European vision of like straight to the top. Yeah. And I, whenever I spoke to him, he was like, you know, like you go here, you go here, you go here. And like, you do well, you move up, you move up. So I was very much brought into the idea of, oh my God, if I go to Scandinavia, I'm going straight to the top. I'm going to be in the Premier League. So I was very excited for that. And I was very excited for the new challenge. I think just like football wise, I was very excited to uh, progress. Mm. I think that there's definitely, that path becomes a little bit more linear, at least to see in Europe, whereas doesn't always quite look like that in the States where it's not like, you know, I do well at league one and then I go up and then I go up and I go up just without promotion relegation and the system being a little bit murkier. But even in Europe, it's never just as cut and dry as you go in, you do well, everything's roses and then you move up another level, but Mm -hmm. you 
were in a, in a pretty good level in your first experience over in Europe playing in the Danish Superliga. What was that experience like when you kind of first touched down in Denmark and talked to me about the first couple of weeks, getting adjusted to the culture, getting adjusted to the football and the club? All right. I first went over. This was actually even before I signed with my team, Ben but I went over. I actually had the same agent as Chase, this guy named Thomas. And I first, I land in Denmark, first time ever. <laughs> and my agent picks me up, never met this man in my life. <laughs> and we're just driving like an hour. We drive straight to this team called Hobro. And okay. he's yeah. like, Hobro has a practice game today, right now. Do you want to play in it? And I was like, honestly, I, I hear so many people talk about like, oh, when you get off the plane, jet lag, whatever, you know, I don't want to play. But I was like, screw it. Like, I'll play. I don't care. Mm. So pull up, <laughs> pull up, pull up at uh, the facility, go into the locker room. I know nobody. I know only Emmanuel Sabi, who I went on trial to Las Palmas with. And I'd met him once before we stayed four days together. So he and I say hi. There's actually a guy from college who went to Santa Clara, who's Danish who's now trialing for that same team there. So anyways, we get in the game. I actually ended up doing pretty well. I played like, even though I hadn't played for a while, I'd just been training. I think I played straight up like 80 minutes and I scored a goal, mm. which is awesome. And I come to find out what I thought was a trial. My agent then turned around to the coach and was like, hey, so what do you think of this guy? And the team was kind of like, oh, we didn't know this was a trial. And he was like, yeah, no, like, are you interested in this guy? And they're like, well, yeah, he did well, but like, let's see him again next week. We haven't seen enough. Train during the week, play another, play another practice game. And I score again. And my agent's like, so what do you think? <laughs> and they were kind of like, oh, like, well, we haven't, uh, let's give him another week. I spent a month on trial with Hobro. Come to find out the coaches were big fans of me and really wanted me to be there. And the sporting director was not a fan of me and didn't want me there. So they were kind of trying mm. to reconcile that. So I didn't actually end up making whole bro in the end of the day because my agent was like, look, you need to give us a decision. They're like, you know what? We're not going to take you. So then I went on trial to the team that I ended up with, Ben Susel, who's actually in the first division, which is the second highest here. And trialed with them. They liked me, was going to sign there. And then same thing, sports director was like, ah, we should hold off. Like, I don't know. So I ended up not signing there. And they were like, we'll come back in the summer. Again, long rant. So sorry. They were like, come back in the summer. So I came back in the summer and they actually promoted from the first division to the Super League yep. while I wasn't there. So it was super good for me that I ended up in the Super League when I made that team. But my experience in Denmark or first getting there was horrifying i remember i walked into a supermarket and tried to buy some stuff and some woman started speaking danish to me and i kind of freaked out <laughs> because i just felt so like fish out of water confused kind of shocked that i ended up where i was but you know ended up growing out of that and actually really enjoying my time in denmark I made a lot of good friends good happy to hear that yeah i think everybody has that moment when you're in a foreign country it's almost a uh unanimous thing that I hear from players that play overseas and it's always, it always seems to be the grocery store too I don't know why it's, it's like that's the that's the traumatizing place for people because somebody will say something to you and you just freeze I don't know for whatever yes. reason no matter it doesn't matter how much Danish how much German how much whatever country you're in how much you've practiced that first moment where it's real and, and you get tested <laughs> with the language you're like ah oh, and your body just shuts down I don't know what it is <laughs> Yeah, it was it was very weird. I think the other thing that was weird for me was I would be walking around the town, you know, exploring 
and everything would just shut down at like 3 p.m. because people were just like, I'm just going to go home. So I was very confused by <laughs> how much Danish people worked or what their lives were. Yeah. Yeah. They have a really good work-life balance there, but the people are incredibly friendly, amazing culture, amazing football culture as well. What was your experience with that? Did you notice any real distinct differences between the passion for the game within the club, within fans? Oh yeah. Right away. I mean, I remember USL games S2, like we had, we had some fans. I remember people would show up, but there was not like the same spirit as these little towns had. So yeah, this first yeah. town that I traveled with, Hobro, tiny little town in Denmark, but like the games were packed. Everyone had the flags, everyone had the shirts, everyone had, like knew the chants. You know, they had the whole like, maybe you experienced this where like, you know, you're warming up for the game and they're singing a chant with your name in it and you go over and you do like the hey, 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 <laughs> thing. So very cool environment, very spirited environment. Amazing, amazing. Totally different from the US. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Especially, I think second division, you know, third division soccer in our country is growing a little bit. And there's certainly some markets where you can get uh, an amazing atmosphere. But it's just, I'm sure I've said this a million times in this podcast, what's so unique about those little clubs, that's the community's club. It's it's where everyone in the community has some sort of connection to it. Because oftentimes they're more than just football clubs, they're sport clubs. So anyone who has any interest in sport or just being social has some sort of connection to the club. So there's just such a deep rooted connection to the the people that are there, to the staff, to the players. And it's something that I think the U S is, I don't know. I don't know if we can ever really replicate that level. I would agree with that. I, I don't, I also don't know what it is, but there's something different about those like hometown clubs and the way that people come out and support and really like know all the players and all the little details of I don't know the chants and the cheering and I don't yeah. know it's just like a diff- there's something different about it I don't know what it is yeah yeah I heard I heard something pretty interesting uh on a podcast that some of my friends produced that uh player who had played in Germany for a couple of years he said something like if you love cuisine like if you love food more than anything like you go to france you know you go to paris because you experience that's where food is like culture and food is everything and so he was kind of saying something similar for football like if you love football more than anything you go to somewhere in europe you know you go to germany you go to denmark you go to somewhere where it's the lifeblood of a lot of people and it just Mm -hmm. kind of changes your perspective on the game Mm -hmm. so i agree with that the Experience in Denmark, were you there for one season with Vensusel? I was with Vensusel for a year and a half. So I did one full season in the Super League. Uh, we got demoted. And then I did half a season in the first division is what I did. Gotcha. Was that drop in level kind of part of the reason why you chose to then go to Malta because I'm super interested. I don't think I've ever talked to a player that's played in Malta before. So I definitely have questions about that. (laughs) Oh yeah. Hit me with them. So my first year in the Super League in Denmark with Ventusel was very interesting. We had a coach who promoted the team from the first division to the Super League. We had a new assistant coach and then we had the same sports director. Halfway through I think the first half of the year, so maybe about like August or so, our, I guess, chairman came to our team and was like, hey guys, so the sports director's leaving, no drama or anything, but 
you know, he's, he's just going to do something different. And we're like, Oh, okay. No problem. Come to find out this man actually slept with one of the sponsor's wives (laughs) and they actually caused a lot of trouble. So he had to leave, but then the sponsor's wife ended up leaving the sponsor and being with him drama. Anyway, so we lost the sports story. <laughs> it's like director. a telenovela right now. <laughs> exactly. Fantastic story. So lost the sports director. We got a new sports director. This guy used to be a coach. And he's like, hey, I used to be a coach, but I'm done with that world. I just want to be a sports director. By November, December, he got an offer from a different team in the Super League to be a coach. And he left. So he switched sports directors twice at that point. And we got a new sports director come uh, January. Uh, and the first half of the year was great. You know, I worked my way into the team, started playing and was really happy. The coach uh, was a big fan of mine and uh, I was injured. But he was like, hey, we really need you to play in these big games. Like we're playing Columbia, like one of the best teams. Like I really want you to play. Mm-hmm. So it was great. First half of the year. We got a new sports director in January. This man was not a fan of mine Ooh. at all. I don't know why. And from then it kind of just went downhill. So the reason I left Denmark was kind of because the sports director was like, told me and my agent, he was like, you don't have a future at this club. I'm not a fan of yours. You should probably just leave. And just to put this in a little more context for maybe players who don't quite understand the difference, what is the difference between a coach and a sports director at a club like this? Like to the best of your knowledge, like being a part of a club like this. Oh, I guess you're right. So a coach obviously handles the team, the tactics, things like that, you know, things relating to the pitch and uh, the players directly. The sporting director, at least in Denmark, his role is to talk with the coach and be like, okay, so you, you want to play a 4-3-3. You like to have fast wingers. You like to have you know, center backs that maybe stay in or whatever. I will go find those players for you and bring them to you. Okay. So that's how I understood the relationship to be. Actually, more of the story was when we were still in the Super League, my sports director ended up firing – our coaches Mm. bringing in kind of like a puppet coach who like he worked with, but the sports director basically tried to run the team and save us from demotion. And he actually ended up causing, costing us demotion. So, you know, he oversteps his bounds, but normally a sports director is just supposed to find the players and the pieces that the coach wants and bring them to him. So really in a perfect world, it's supposed to be like a partnership, but Obviously, in this case, it was kind of just like a who can grab the most power sort of situation. Yeah. For some reason, he thought he knew best. So he started, you know, he ousted the coach and then tried to do it all himself. Okay. So sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to give some clarity to those that may might be confused about that. So we're, we're nearing the end of that half year with Ben Susil and the sporting director and coach drama is still is still ongoing. It's hot. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> got got demoted because yeah, sports director got too uh, big for his position. Hmm. And then that was the discussion. Then that started to lead to, let's head on over to Malta. Yes. So towards the end of my one and a half years, so this was December of 2019. He was telling me things like that, and I was like, okay, like that's fine. So I spoke with my agent, and my agent was trying to find me different options. So one of the options that was going to happen was. There's a team called Silgeborg in Denmark, and they're, they were in the Super League at that time. And they're a very good team. They have a very good system. They develop a lot of very good players. And my agent was like, hey, I, I want to bring you to this team. And the deal was that it was basically going to be a swap. So I was going to swap to Silgeborg, and there's a team that was going to, or there's a player that was going to come down to Vensusel. 
So I would be going to the Super League. This person would be coming to the first division. That player who I was going to swap with did not want to go to my team. Understandably, we were kind of in shambles. So that <laughs> ended up not happening. And the only thing that really came across, because this was all decided kind of like late, late January that this was happening. There was a sports director from Malta who'd come to Copenhagen, I think the year prior and saw my team play in Copenhagen. So he'd followed my team and followed me and really liked me as a player. So he'd inquired about me before. My sports director was like, no, we're not going to get rid of him. Mm-hmm. And then come December, he inquired about me again. My sports director was like, yeah, take him. So that was how I ended up in Malta. Basically, yeah, I was like, I can't be on this team. I need to switch teams because nothing good is happening for me here. And this Maltese guy was like, hey, come here. <laughs> and my agent was like, what do you think of Malta? And I was like, Malta, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> where is it uh, what language do they speak what's going on that's exactly that's exactly it and i remember the team was balsan and i remember i looked at balsan malta and the first picture that came up was like this little church and i was like where the hell am i about to live <laughs> <laughs> but uh come to find out malta is a very tiny island you can go anywhere in 15 minutes so it was great uh ended up in malta hmm. and again it circles back to a point that you were talking about earlier that like you were saying to your friend that you, you picture being a professional soccer player as this kind of thing, right? That you are playing big stadiums and your name's on mm-hmm. the back of the jersey and you're scoring goals and blah, blah, blah. You're doing interviews like this podcast that gets millions mm-hmm. of downloads week in and week mm-hmm. out. But then, you know, fast forward, you're in a club in Denmark where behind the scenes, it's it seems like a dumpster fire at some points where people are just getting fired and there's backstabbing and and all sorts of crazy things. There's a lot that Mm -hmm. goes into just being a professional that a lot of people don't really understand or don't get to see. Yeah. There are a lot of little dynamics playing, playing out behind the scenes of every club. Yeah. hundred percent at any club in any country in any league where money starts to get involved, things can start to get a little bit weird. (laughs) Yes, sir. So we're in Malta and how would you describe Balzan FC? How would you describe Malta? What would you say to a player that's like, hey, uh, I have this opportunity in Malta and I want to go play there? What would you say? Oh, my God. Malta is beautiful. <laughs> it's so pretty. The water's so blue. Uh, the people are very nice. I mean, any European opportunity, I mean, come to find out European opportunities are very rare. Well, I'm not even coming to find out, but, you know, not everyone gets the European opportunity. And I think it still holds true that, you know, if you play in Europe, a lot of teams are watching the different leagues and it's very easy to move up and move on if you play well, if you do well. Yeah. So any European opportunity, I definitely say take it. But Malta was very cool and different. I think coming from Denmark, which is a very, it's a league or at least I was on a, no, it's a league. It's a league that's very focused on like technical ability. It's also, and also like team organization. I know my team, we were kind of bottom of the super league. And we kind of knew that. So we focused a lot on staying in our 4-4-2 block and defending as a team and then, you know, kind of taking our chances for counters. So going to Malta was different for me because it was a lot more individual. You had a lot of like older experienced uh, Maltese players who played on the team. And you also have a lot of uh, young talents. So I think it was a definite difference in style of play. But it was really cool. I, I loved Malta. I thought the funny thing about Malta is since it's so small, they actually only have three stadiums total, mm-hmm. like on the whole island. So all the games in the, in the Premier League, is what it's called, were played like on one of these three pitches. So nobody um, really had a, a home stadium. Everyone just kind of shared. So you had like a tra- home training ground, 
Ours was literally at like a high school, the worst pitch, <laughs> the worst turf you've ever seen in your life. So flat. But then, yeah, there's no home stadium. There were only three. There's like the national team stadium. There was a really nice grass pitch that was by the water. Beautiful. And then there was a turf one that was in the, by the national team. stadium. Those are the three stadiums that anyone played games in. Hmm. Which do you think in your experience thus far in your career has really suited you in terms of you said that playing style was so different from Malta to Denmark. And I'm sure there was also differences when you were in the U S as well. What do you feel like has suited the way that you like to play? That's a good question. I would say the way that I like to play was very influenced or has been very much changed by my time in Denmark. I think I kind of craved learning a new way of playing and developing as a player. And those two years or a year and a half I spent playing in Denmark were very good for me in terms of, I learned how to defend. I learned how to press. I learned how to, I don't know, play more in a team, play more in a shape. So I, I really liked playing in Denmark and I really liked learning the system out there. And I, I reflect fondly back on that time, even though, you know, craziness is going on behind the scenes. Yeah. I mean, clearly you did enjoy it because you found yourself back there again. <laughs> true. That is true. <laughs> so was the experience in Malta just not something that you wanted to continue to pursue after that season? Or did the opportunity in Denmark come about and it was something that you didn't really want to turn down? So kind of like we were talking about things going on behind the scenes all the time. I got to my Maltese team and they hadn't been doing well. They were traditionally one of the, you know, bigger clubs in Malta. And I think they were sitting maybe in like sixth or seventh that year. So I got there, I think I practiced one, one or two times and we had a game against one of the other bigger clubs and we were losing, I think two, I think we were losing two to one and someone on my team got a red card. And our coach was ejected or my coach was like not there that game for some reason. Maybe he had a red card the game prior. So the assistant coach kind of looks down the bench and he's like, we need a center attacking midfielder. And he's like, Shay, get in there. Never played there in my life. <laughs> we lost three, one or four, one. Next day I go to training and we have a meeting and our assistant coach is like apologizing. And our head coach is mad at him. Bottom line, he ended up getting fired because he did something against the coach's wish, which was put me in at center attack mid versus some other player. Mm -hmm. So there was some drama with that. A couple games later, our, our head coach like got sacked and or stepped down. So that was all in shambles. But the real reason I left Malta was coronavirus. Oh, okay. So yeah, it was February, March. It was March 2020. March 20, 2020 and coronavirus is happening in the U.S. and Malta is a tiny, tiny place. I think they had one case at that time, mm -hmm. but uh, the league was shutting down. They're like, hey, we're going to take two weeks off and then come back after two weeks once this whole virus thing settles down. And me thinking was kind of like, there's no way this is just going to be for two weeks. This is going to be shut down for, for me. I was like, this is going to be like a month. It's going to be crazy. So I packed up half of my stuff and came home to the U.S. and then ended up never going back to Malta because of the whole coronavirus situation and the leagues being shut down. Yeah. And I'm sure, especially you with the pre-med background that you had as well. I mean, who knows if anyone really could have predicted that still to this day today, we'd be talking about coronavirus in the way that we are. But I'm sure you could see the writing on the wall a little bit that all these people that are saying, yeah, we'll stop playing soccer for two weeks and then it'll be back. It's not exactly going to work out like that. Yeah, luck, luckily, I uh, because I could have I I could have stayed multiple those two weeks, but I was definitely a little homesick, and I had a very little apartment there that was lovely. But I was like, I would go crazy if I stayed here 
by myself for two weeks or longer. Yeah. So you then took kind of a couple months off during the, the coronavirus, right? Yes, I uh, I went home in March and I was at home until September, October. So, you know, it was good to spend a lot of time with my family because uh, I hadn't seen them in a while since I'd been abroad for the past two years. Yeah. And yeah, I was just at home training. So I train by myself. I also, one of my friends, my really good friends from home, his little sister was playing in college and she was not doing anything either. So she actually trained with me and I kept up with my trainings that I got from my old trainer who sent me to Europe in the first place, Nikki Hollander. So I was just doing a bunch of like super intense trainings waiting for my next opportunity. And that didn't come until September, October ish. Mm. How nice was that though, to have that time? Like you said, the past two years, you'd been away from home, away from family being in Europe. How nice was that to have those few months where it was just like football and family? Amazing. I mean, I think the other thing I kind of learned from being abroad was that I really did be, I did value family a lot. And yeah. I was starting to think that it would be about time for me to come back to the US just because, yeah, I hadn't seen my parents. I mean, they would visit and I'd see them, you know, for Christmas and and during the summer. But, you know, I, I miss being in my family dynamic. There are me and I, there's me and I have three siblings and two parents. So we're usually always talking and very close. So I think I started to want to come back. So having time back in the US, seeing my family uh, was really, really good. I really... You know, as awful as the pandemic was and still is, like I really much enjoyed the fact that it brought me home and I got to hang out with my my family. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think a lot of people share that sentiment. Like I always say, I would never wish that to happen again or to happen to anyone because I know how devastating it was. But that was definitely a benefit that I got out of it as well was that extended period of time getting to spend with family. What do you think? In addition to that, that appreciation of your family and, and maybe an appreciation for a different style of football as well, being over in Europe, what are some other things that you think even just living abroad maybe taught you about yourself or you learned through that whole process? Great question. So I'd never really lived on my own. So yeah. high school, lived with my parents, college, I lived with my roommate for a year, but you know, you ate dorm food and stuff. And then actually I ended up living with my sister who was also in LA. So we just lived like in an apartment by UCLA campus. So I'd always really lived with my family. So lived with my sisters at college, lived at home with Sounders. Going abroad is my first time. I was like really on my own and I went really far. So, you know, learned how to fend for myself a little better, learned how to self-advocate, learned how to cook, learned how to, you know, get a phone plan, different things like that. So I very much advocate slash appreciated my time abroad just for the independence and kind of growing up more than, more than I was at that time. Yeah. Was that ever difficult for you mentally? Were there growing pains kind of in the beginning of trying to figure out all that stuff on your own or being that first time where you're really not isolated, but more so than you've been in the past? I don't think it was ever super difficult. I think I would stay in touch with my family and I'd be like, dad, I think I need a phone. He'd be like, well, you know, go find a carrier and find the best carrier and talk to someone from your club and I'm sure they'll help you out. I actually had a very nice man named Torben. And, oh, and Michelle, I mean, everyone in Denmark spoke English, but they were very nice to me and they really helped me with everything I need, whether it was, you know, finding an apartment, getting a phone plan, setting up a bank account, different things like that. So it wasn't too bad, but uh, it was definitely nice to be learning how to do some things on my own. Yeah, absolutely. And you've now been able to the past little bit, the past year, been able to have that experience of getting to come back home and play in the U.S. And how did it come about that you were able to sign with the Phoenix Rising at a super 
historic club in the USL. And one of those ones that I was kind of mentioning before, I think of when I think of a club that has created that culture around lower level soccer. So I, after coming back from Denmark in, when was that? I guess November, also because of COVID, I was definitely thinking that I'd want to be domestic. That club that I was at, Tisted, was wanting me back. But I was kind of like, no, I think I want to try my luck in the USL. So I was training, 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 didn't have anything at all. And then somehow an agent found me, yeah, a trial with Phoenix. And I was nervous because obviously I knew Phoenix was one of the best teams. But at the same time, I was like, you know what? Like, I, you know, I played in the Super League, you know, it can't be too different from that. Like, it's going to be a high level, but, you know, I think I can do it. So I ended up getting that trial and was here for like a week or in Phoenix for like a week or two and did really well and was lucky enough to get a contract. So I was very happy and excited about that. And it was so affirming and nice to get a, you know, a contract from the best team in the USL. Cause I, I was uh, not sure where I stood in the USL. So I was happy to come back and kind of kill my trial. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Especially having, again, almost come full circle of starting your career kind of in and around that league and then mm-hmm. going and trying your luck elsewhere and then figuring out how you still fit into that league, you know, what the level is like, has it changed? Has your level changed? So I'm sure that was rewarding. Going to Phoenix, I know obviously you then went on loan a little bit after signing that contract. What is it like maybe for, you know, again, if we talk to the listener that doesn't know what it's like to be with a club that loans a player out, what is that like? And in a real loan, not the, not the Orange County loan of years before. Oh yeah. (laughs) An actual thing. Basically what happened was I was on Phoenix. I made the, I had my trial. They signed me. They were very excited to have me. I was very excited to be there couple weeks into the season I wasn't really playing I wasn't even on the roster and I was kind of I guess a pest in the coach's ear kind of being like hey like what can I do I'd really like to play you know can I do better and he was kind of like no you're doing such a great job and you know yet I wasn't on the roster and I was like this is odd (laughs) I eventually got an offer for a loan from OKC and I was like I don't care like what it is like I want to go play so like I'll take it I think I almost forced alone in a way because I was kind of like you know like I you know I, I came to this team to play like I know this is a good team and I know there are a lot of good players on this team but I think I should be playing on this team mm-hmm. so self-advocating kind of got me alone and you know I think loans might be viewed as a bad thing but I was very happy to go on it because it just meant more playing time and more happiness for me versus you know sitting on a bench or you know sitting at home watching your team play yeah yeah absolutely and it's all it's all kind of depends on what stage of your career that you're at you know if if you're in a position like you were where maybe the past year or two has been a little bit up and down i've been in different countries haven't got enough real consistent game minutes it's like i need to go to a place where i can consistently play that's one of the most important things you know training at a high level is great but there's nothing that can compare to actual game minutes week in and week out Correct. And that's kind of how I felt in Denmark as well. And I think that was also part of my motivation to come back to the States. I was like, okay, I'm in Denmark. I'm on this team. I'm playing some minutes, but you know, I really want to be playing from the start. I don't think I've played enough minutes, even though, even my whole career, I don't think I've played enough minutes or as many as I'd want to, to really develop. And I think game minutes are so critical. Like, again, you can train at such a good level, but unless you're doing it in the games, it doesn't matter too much. Yeah. And your time with Oklahoma City Energy also included, it looks like a 
an injury. I, I saw on Instagram uh, a picture of you playing with the uh, the Batman mask on. What uh, Batman what's the story behind that? The story behind that. So our team was in Kansas, Kansas City, training at the Kansas City Complex before our game the next day. And we were playing like a small-sided, I think it, it was something chaotic. It was like a 9v9 on like less than half a pitch. <laughs> and uh, one of my teammates shot the ball and it was kind of a bad shot and ended up like rolling up my leg and popping up by my face. And I was right next to the keeper. So I quickly like headed the ball and the keeper went to punch it and he just rocked me in the face. (laughs) And I remember I went and I sat down and I was talking to my assistant coach and I was like, is my nose like not straight? Cause I was feeling it. It didn't feel straight. He's like, no, no, you look good. You look good. No. (laughs) And I, I went off to the side because the game kind of stopped and I looked at my nose. I was like, no, this is not straight. <laughs> and everyone was like, no, 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 let me see, let me see. And they're like, uh, no, it looks good. And I was like, no, I know my nose is not straight. Anyway, so uh, from that, I ended up getting a concussion, which I'd never had before. And I was out probably almost a month. It was just almost a month of sitting in my room in the dark, not going outside, watching Money Heist. <laughs> so yeah, it wasn't great. Yeah, probably the worst injury I've had. I broke my leg, and I don't think it was nearly as bad as that. But uh, yeah, that was that was a part of my season. Wow. Yeah, concussions are one of the weirdest, I think, injuries to have. Uh, I only had one, and it was relatively mild. Obviously, not anything compared to what you had to go through. But what was that like? Just spending each day, you know, not being able to train, like you said, having to kind of stay in a in a dark room away from the outside world. I don't know why I think injuries are kind of funny <laughs> in the sense that I, I also didn't realize how kind of severe it was. I thought it was pretty chill. I thought it was going to go away. So the first, I want to say maybe week or so I ended up like going to practice. So I would just be there like with sunglasses on in the locker room, like hanging out with the guys. Cause I, I, I didn't feel it was right for me to just sit at, sit at home cause it was boring, but also, you know, you should be with your team. I was there joking around, hanging out, but, you know, I sl- I soon figured out that kind of sitting in the light exacerbated my symptoms. So sitting in my room was uh, weird, boring, terrible. Not much good came from it besides me just sitting there and watching Money Heist. You know, it, it was what it was. And I actually ended up, I think I sat in my room for a while, maybe let's say two weeks, three weeks. And then we kind of figured out that I needed to get surgery and straighten my nose. Oh, so then that put me out another week. Yeah. That wasn't great. Well, I didn't get a full surgery. I kind of just got like a, they knocked me out and then kind of just broke it back in the place. So it wasn't anything crazy, but I did get some sort of a cosmetic surgery. Mm. <laughs> and where we kind of, I think this brings us almost up to current day, where are we kind of at now in terms of off season, in terms, I know we spoke about it a little bit at the top. I remember I asked earlier in the episode, what a typical training day was like when you were with the Sounders, like what's a typical off season day for you like now? Typical off season day. I think this is an abnormal period. You've actually caught me kind of post my OKC season. I was taking a look at myself, looking at my career, look at my age, look at my situation. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've been very much considering retirement. I've actually, I took a couple courses from UCLA this summer, just since they were online and I've really enjoyed those and I still want to pursue the pre-med path. Yes. So I think I've been looking a lot at that recently, but at the same time, you know, still considering my options in the USL, I think 
something this therapist I, I work with told me was that like, you know, no matter what age you leave it and no matter like what you've done, like even if I played in the Prem, scored goals, Champions League, World Cup, like the day you have to leave the sport, you're always going to miss it. And I was like, ah, that's so true. So I've been trying to balance thinking about retirement and then also uh, thinking about still playing. So I've very much been considering my options this offseason. But, uh, you know, my trainings usually look like I actually have a trainer in Phoenix who I've been working with. His name is Noel Castillo. He's a very good, uh, very good trainer. I really like what he does. Focus a lot on the technical, but also, you know, scanning and also just little details that I think are very important. Won't get into too much detail, give away his secrets. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll usually work with him and my friend Ryan or my friend Lalo, my friend Noah from Phoenix and just do the little things every single day. As someone who has, I know you mentioned earlier on in your career that there was a life coach that you would speak to, speaking to maybe a therapist now at this point in your career as well. How important has that been for you, kind of taking care of the mental side of the game for yourself? Because I think it's something that is talked about a bit more now in the game that maybe it wasn't in the past. But can you speak to that at all, how helpful it's been for you and what your experience has been like with it? Of course. I think for me, it's absolutely critical. I think in general, in the game of soccer, or well, probably in any sport, it's just like there are such minute little details and differences that go from that, that take you from, let's say, being in the USL to being in the Premier League. Yeah. Like not all of it is technical, tactical, even though a lot of it is. But, you know, I think I remember one of my coaches in Denmark, he played for like a lower team in Denmark. He scored like one one goal. I think he scored a bicycle kick and it took him from like playing in Denmark to playing in Italy. So I think there's such little details and finite things that make a difference. And I think the mentality has been one thing for me that I've always wanted to work on because I am more of a shy, timid person. I think I need to work on kind of putting myself out there in different ways. So people kind of understand what I'm about and how I like to play and how I like to be. Cause I think it's a little different from other people. So I think mentality for me, and not even just like, I don't know, work ethic or anything, because that's not really my issue, but just putting myself out there in ways so people could see me better than they do, I think Mm -hmm. is the most important. So I think working with life coaches, working with therapists who really understand the game and understand the kind of the psychological aspects of being a player, being a different person uh, are very important. Have you seen those conversations come to fruition in your psychology i guess as you're entering a season entering training or entering games have you kind of seen some of those tactics or ideas that they give you in those sessions that you get to speak with have you seen them develop you as a as a player kind of mentally i think so this therapist i've been working with recently she's great so she's actually worked with the oklahoma city thunder for a long time uh, i don't think she still works there anymore but she has a lot of insight on i guess also the psychology of a player, but also the psychology of a club, psychology of a coach. So some of the coolest things she's told me are just about like, for example, I think she was talking about how I think the Thunder wanted to bring in, let's say a number one draft pick. And the coach was like, oh, we think he's going to be so good for this team. Like he's so like tenacious. He's so talented. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, actually, I don't think he's a good fit for this team, like psychologically, because let's say he's not a good leader. He's not a good team player. You know, like I think the psychology is so important. And so I would say nothing she's directly told me yet I've been able to apply because I've only started working with her over these past two months. But just the sessions I've had with her have been life-changing for me, just for my perspective on the game and on perspective on myself and my career. 
Yeah. Do you think your interest in going into the pre-med track in conjunction with this work that you're doing with life coaches and therapists and stuff like that, has that been something that's kind of sparked your interest about going into sports psychology or is the medicine that you want to do kind of something unrelated? hundred percent. I mean, I think I've, I've always had a big affinity and love for psychology. I've always been very interested in it. The only way I really thought of being involved in like the brain and neuroscience was being a neurosurgeon. So I think deep down, I'm like, oh, neurosurgery would be very cool. But actually, after talking to her and after playing the game and seeing that there are so many little things and little details that go into being a pro and being successful, I think being a sports psychologist would be awesome because I would love to help younger players, other players, you know, kind of work through their careers in more helpful and constructive and happy ways than I have kind of worked through mine, if that makes sense. Yeah. I definitely agree. I think it's, you know, it's something that I've talked about openly on this podcast for. It's something that I've struggled with. I know a lot of other players struggle with it as well, but it's not always something that's been openly talked about how difficult it really is to be a pro, to stay a pro, the sacrifices that you need to make, the things that you give up, you know, it's, again, it just circles back to our initial conversation of, I think that Sure. Being a professional soccer player on the surface looks like it can be the greatest job in the world. You know, what's better than being paid to kick a soccer ball around on a field. But there's a, there's a lot that people don't understand what happens off the field, what, what that life is really like for a player. So again, it's, I think something why I like to share stories like this with people to maybe just open up a different side of, of what people view the game as different perspective. So I appreciate you coming on to, to share your story with us. It's definitely, definitely a valuable one. Amazing. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm glad. I, I think, you know, after listening to a couple of these, like I, I really, I really think it's good to, you know, share your story and hear like the little details because some people might have a story like mine or a feeling like mine and some people might have a story or a feeling like someone else's. So yeah, it's good. It's just good for uh, people going through it. Yeah. Yeah. To, to know that there's a player who maybe is similar to you, or if you don't see a player that has a route that you've taken, maybe you can find one that is similar or someone's done a completely different way that you never even thought of. You know, I just talked to a player recently who's played in Thailand and Cambodia and stuff like that. And I was fascinated by that. And, you know, now I've talked to a player who's played in Malta before, so can always learn something new. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Take a little bit from me take a little bit from other people and you'll be good. 100%. All right. Well, I wish you the best of luck in uh, the next few months, kind of figuring out what's next for you. I'm sure you'll have success in it wherever you go. But again, I can't thank you enough for uh, spending a little time with us and, and popping in the 11. No problem. Thank you, my G. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. All right. See you later. See you later. I want to thank Shay again for being in the 11 with us this week. Great interview. Great conversation. I want to thank all of you who continue to listen week in and week out. Thank you so much for your support and your continued support as we move forward here. I want to especially thank those of you who at the top made sure to rate and review this pod if you haven't already done so. Like I said, Apple has it. Spotify now has it, I know. And I'm sure any other platform in which you might be listening has an option for you to be able to rate and review the show. So if you could do that, it helps so much to grow the brand and grow the podcast a little bit. So again, thank you. Thank you, Shay. And uh, we'll catch you in the next one. Peace. Peace.